Hey, it's Madison, the Black Eagle, and here's a highlight from today's show. One of my uh, favorite professors is uh, Dr. Scott Brown, Associate Professor of uh, African American Studies and History at the University of California, Los Angeles, better known as UCLA, author of a book, Fighting for Us, and then he plans uh, real soon uh, to give a lecture on (laughs) Word Up. Um, thank you so much, and Dr. Uh, Dr. Brown, so good to have you back on the Madison Show. Um, talk to us about this uh, lecture, and I guess a lot of people would like to know, uh, why, is, why are these lectures, particularly when we're dealing with uh, music and hip-hop and funk, uh, why are they so popular on uh, on uh, campus? And please don't tell me because, it, and, and I know you, it can't be an easy course. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Mr. Oh, always Joe good to have Madison. you on. Always, yeah. uh, just being in the orbit of the Black Eagle is always a pleasure. I appreciate so it. to be here. And let me just say, you're right. The, the I think the full title of the lecture coming up on um, thir- next Thursday. Yeah, September 16th. Mm-hmm. I think it's Word Up African-American Bands or Black Bands and the Cultural Politics of Funk. It's around that issue of the bands and, of that period. The so Word Up is a song of one of the last bands from the funk era that did really well in the 1980s. The 80s was such a difficult period for bands that were popular in the 70s to survive. Because of Why? Okay. Well, there were so many reasons for it. It was a perfect storm of changes in the music industry. And I'll focus more on the industry side. A lot of people like to talk about, well, the technology changed and it became more computerized and synthesizers, but that does not explain the persistence of self-contained bands in pop music, in rock music, and in other areas. So there's some issues, especially on the question of the racialization of music and music styles and the fact that so many black artists and black music and black divisions in record labels have smaller budgets, and are much more beholden to what is fashionable. In other words, in pop music, there are executives that believe in the self-contained band, the Beatles model. And it doesn't matter if 5,000 or 5 million kids are playing instruments. They're going to make sure that that model survives in that style. And what happened with the loss of so many powerful black executives who are as much a part of the story of black bands, funk music, even Dayton, Ohio funk is also related to this business side. As I'm kind of uh, in the final stages of a book that I've been working on for many years, um, Mr. Madison, I'm now grappling with sort of the, the business side and much less what's happening on the ground. 
Why did Dr. I mean, I'm just making notes while you're talking. Why did why did music, these labels, you said we lost black executives. Why? Yes. Well, so let, let me take you back to the era of labels like VJ Records and Motown, et cetera, that were really, really important in terms of chess Chess records, but I'm, I'm really focusing on black-owned records, record labels. So what was so important about that space that entrepreneurs like Barry Gordy were able to see is the relative neglect of black consumer markets on a major scale. So what Gordy demonstrated was not only is there an important apparatus to be built that can sell black music, but also that larger pop audiences would buy black music. And, of course, they have their whole expertise in marketing and imagery and all these kinds of things that navigated the racial terrain of their times. That gave, And there were a few other boutique, smaller labels. But the, by the mid-'70s, the bigger labels, Warner Brothers, what was called CBS Records, which eventually became Sony, but CBS Records with Epic and Columbia. What happened is those big, large labels created what they call black divisions. So Al Bell, for instance, who was uh, the black owner of, uh, black uh, CEO of Stax Records, second CEO of Stax Records, and was really launching a whole new effort, those larger conglomerates, those larger companies bought up a lot of the talent that was signed to Stax Records, um, even some of the comedians like Richard Pryor, um, The Emotions, and so many other groups would then go over there because of the lure of the larger size contracts, and they had the expertise of black executives who understood the black community in such a way. I'm speaking of people like, you know, Larkin Arnold. There's um, a documentary out on Netflix called Black Godfather about Clarence Avon. Right. Uh, there's a yeah. whole generation of these entrepreneurs, these executives who came out of black music in a very organic way and were pioneers, Logan Westbrooks, for instance, and so many of them. And what they were able to do was to really prioritize something that was important to them and their sense of community. So bands flourished really in large measure, well, in, the, in an accompanying measure to the talent that was coming up. So there were people on the inside that said, yes, this is the way to go. So you have a, a label a division head like Larkin Arnold, who is responsible for the group's son out of Dayton, Ohio, former uh, class president, uh, Byron Bird, right, from from yeah. the Overnight Low Show Band at Roosevelt High School in Dayton. Yeah, yeah he was called he, Son, right? Yeah, we were in the same class. He was uh, the same class, uh, the class of 67, yeah, at Roosevelt. 67, well... Exactly. So he ends up getting a record deal really at the sole decision and discretion of Larkin Arnold, who he had makes contacts with through a more complicated story. But the point is that's the kind of power 
that these division, black division heads had. Many of them could even draw the contract up and secure and, and close the deal without any approval necessary. Mm-hmm. By the time now, uh, I, I have lots of the, lots of things that change. One of the major things that changes is a force of nature named Michael Jackson. And, Off the wall, yeah, saves the record industry from really, really the kind of declines that we're seeing, especially around the kind of pushback to disco. Michael Jackson revolutionized music and music selling to the extent that so many other folks said, wait a minute, we can't just leave that over there, right? That can't, we can't, we all need a piece of this. Now, when you when when you say Dr. Brown, we can't leave that over there. Who is right. we, and what what do you over there <laughs> yeah. meaning where? Over there, right? Good question. So, uh, before the Jacksons, before Michael Jackson did the solo project, when they first left Motown, initially they were produced by some phenomenal, legendary. Uh, black uh, executives and black label owners, uh, that's um, Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff. They had an association with them. But eventually they, the Jacksons, by the time you get to shake your body down to the ground and and that kind of real Mm -hmm. um, smash on the charts, they were now with outside of the purview of Gamble and Huff. But what is seen with off the wall is those record sale numbers are such that the when I say who are we, we I'm saying our black executives are no longer going to be able to have the kind of tentacles around an artist like Michael Jackson because he mm-hmm. generates so much revenue. And to the extent that white executives, pop executives, everybody is going to want to get in on black music because it starts to generate, I mean, it's record-setting sales, right? Off the wall. Right. That's another record with Thriller. Right. So that's, no longer, that's no longer over there, the black division. Now you're talking about a force that actually changes music, period, as we know it. And so that's what I mean by that. And then the other pushback is, in the 80s conservative era, this idea of uh, black division, there were attempts to organize executives across different companies to try to kind of focus on the power dynamic uh, that black artists and black executives could pull together. But uh, that organization did not, did not suppress the winds of thirst for profit that black music was generating. So wait so, a minute. So, so we're talking about, because it, it, in other words, it didn't materialize. And I, I can visualize this. So you have all these black music executives. And as you say, basically they came up organically. They didn't study at UCLA or in essence no. business. They learned from the ground up, hit and miss. And and then fortunate enough maybe to to get a hit, got made money, 
But then when they tried to come together to consolidate their influence, and I'm, trust me, I'm just trying to put my own thoughts together, they just, it just didn't work out, I'm assuming, because they didn't have the financial resources or were they competing against mm-hmm. one another or well, that, what? Yeah, that's, that, I don't think it was a question of resources. I mean, the group that I'm thinking about that, um, there's a great legacy and story there. The reason why we have uh, Black Music Month is really because of the organizing of uh, Kenny Gamble and, and Deanna Williams and others who uh, were members of the Black Music Association. Mm-hmm. But that, but the question becomes, you know, what does an organization like that um, look like? Is it a, is it like the country music organization that is more of a trade organization that has a say and an idea about what constitutes country music? Is it a black power organization where people are actually thinking about power and maybe even some kind of entity is it going to is it going to morph into a, a non, another autonomous entity? Is it just like a conference? I mean, there are lots of ideas about uh-huh. that, but I think right. the challenge the challenge of organizing executives across different corporations, I think, is um, ongoing. I don't think that's been achieved on a high level. Yeah. Um, the vision for it may have been bigger than what they were able to accomplish, but the vision was absolutely important and influential. But as far as being able to stop this trend against autonomous black music divisions, that was in motion. Now, I locate the Michael Jackson phenomenon as a, a catalyst but I don't think that's the only one, and someone else may very well argue that there were events before or after that pushed it even further along. But it's pretty obvious that Michael Jackson was not going to be under a black music division for long. Uh, or, uh, now, let me ask you long. this. Is, is it, well, okay, because that's one of my favorite albums. I mean, I just went... Off the wall, yeah, off the wall. Just yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> is it because you just said something? Uh, he he wouldn't be under that that group of of executives and that. It, and and how much influence did the artists like Michael Jackson have? Uh, and 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 because that's where I'm. I'm I, and any other artist uh, for that for that matter how much influence would they have oh i think it's trem- tremendous influence there's a great documentary that i saw in the making of off the wall that was done by spike lee and it's phenomenal uh, especially because we tend to know less about uh, michael jackson's brilliance around the music business side which there's more of it that becomes visible in the 80s as he gets into purchasing royalties uh, for other art from other artists and even giving them back to some of the black artists that had lost their royalties. So there's he's a he was an incredible savvy of business and music mind, um, but the influence was powerful. But I think the jump from the Jacksons to Off the Wall was was major. And mm-hmm. then when you take the influence was so great that the 
the legend is anyway that MTV, who used the idea that they had a rock format, would not play a lot of black artists in its initial years. And the legend is that the uh, CEO of CBS Records, Walt Yetnikoff, made a call to MTV and threatened to pull all of their white artists hmm. if, they, if they did not play Billie Jean. Right? Billie Jean was not a rock and roll song, but the video was phenomenal. The company invested a lot in it, and the the like I said, it's, well, I say legend. It may not be legend because it's been repeated often in a lot of books. It's sort of like more oral history. I'm not so sure of if there was a recording or uh, a written record of it, but that's the story that yeah. sort of in a lot of popular music history that they had to make that threat, and then of course that opened the door for Billie Jean. No, but let they me remain hostile to artists like Rick James, uh, so many huh. black artists that never were able to be seen on um, MTV, and the videos that they produced would eventually be seen on BET, but at first in a smaller market, and then, of, of course, a couple of years after their prime. Let me ask you, do you have time, if we could go a little bit longer, because there are some other questions I want to bring up, if you don't. Okay, Uh, thank you. Yeah, this is not every day that I have this opportunity, so, you know, I want to stay on as long as we can. Dr. Scott Brown is Associate Professor of African American Studies and History at UCLA, and... um, he is author of several books. Uh, one is Fighting for Us. Uh, I can't even begin to list the numerous articles on African-American history, social and political movements, music, pop culture. Um, and as he pointed out, a book he's been uh, working on for several years, uh, exploring Dayton, Ohio, and that whole funk uh, 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 sound and, and how Dayton and actually Cincinnati and Hamilton, uh, these are all southern Ohio uh, cities, uh, were a hotbed of uh, funk bands. And we'll do that and, and do more and, and uh, continue just a, a moment. We'll continue. Yours truly, the Black Eagle, uh, with Dr. Uh, Brown. Um, your lectures, uh, September 16th, uh, titled A Word Up, um, who attends your lectures? Uh, and, and again, what I mean by that, what is usually their interest? Is it business? Is it uh, uh, the music? Um, I mean, and, and what is it that when you lecture uh, at the university on this, what is it you want those who attend the lecture, particularly students, uh, to uh, to get out of the lecture, other than your tremendous knowledge? Yes, I think that's a very good question. One point that stays with me from the real education that I got and am still receiving, but I hopefully am um, getting. I'm not going to get a degree for it, but all the studying I've done with the interviews, interviewing people like yourself and others who work in music or indirectly affected by it, one of the big 
important lessons was from record executive label owner uh, Dick Griffey of the Sound of Los Angeles Records. And he made the point that he's sort of talking about black folks around the world and, and black folks, and then he's comparing them, blacks in the diaspora, in comparison to blacks uh, on the continent, Africans on the continent and Africans here. And he's saying one distinction is that on the continent, in addition to all the cultural wealth, there's all this mineral wealth. There's all this, all these natural resources that um, has been the magnet for other countries to come in and to exploit and to profit off and the very people on the land that generate these resources oftentimes don't benefit from them to the extent that's in proportion to the wealth created for others. And so he kind of sees that as a, uh, we, we would kind of all think about that as a colonial relationship, if you will. Right. When Griffey's talking about blacks in the diaspora, one of the most important resources that he, like a natural resource like oil, is black music. And because I am trained in the area of African-American studies, of black studies, Africana studies, which is an interdisciplinary view, all those things that you asked as to what, what I want folks to get out of it are a part of the story. So if you're thinking about, if we look at black music as a resource that generates tremendous wealth for the world, so disproportionate to the labor of those that created and the communities that it comes out of, right? We think like that, then we'll see that the music is not just about sound. It's not just about performance. It's about all of these other aspects mm -hmm. in the economy and social life. And all of these areas are things that need, we need to actually hone in on and be able to talk about. So what I, if I had to underline the point, I would say that the black band is one unit in an important history of black music that has implications for all these other kinds of things, music in the schools, autonomous control of radio, or if, if it's not radio today because we're, we do a lot of things on the Internet, autonomous control over the distribution apparatus, whatever that might be. All of those issues are still very much with us today. So when I talk about the rise and fall of the band, it's in relationship to these larger questions about the disparity between the resource that is created by African people and the benefit yeah. and the wealth generated by it. And you know, that's, as you the wider that's the widest point that I'm making, but it's filled with all kinds of other stories. I think we picked the title word up, um, Professor Dave Canton, chair of African American Studies. Uh, at University of Florida, brilliant uh, colleague of mine. He uh, he sees sort of that song "Word Up" by Cameo as one of the remaining funk bands that had a hit in the '80s. Because I'll talk about what's happening with these changes in the '80s. So that's that's why he picked that title. Yeah, and by the way, uh, Professor Canton is the editor of my and writer for my memoir. Um, wow! Oh, I, it, yeah. He uh, when our book is almost ready. We're uh, 
we've already got the title and we've just got the artwork well, done. You, and, you, know, you and picked we, the right scholar because he's well, he, a you know, we, and a serious, you know, serious, great mind. Yeah, we spent, um, we, I'm glad to hear that. We spent uh, almost, I guess, what has it been, three years, almost three years uh, putting yeah, the book yeah. together. And uh, it was, uh, it was, it, it has been an eye opener for me. Um, I'm uh, glad but, uh, that it took you that long because <laughs> now why do you say that? <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad, Mr. Madison, because I know you have said many times, maybe in private, maybe in your private thoughts, why is it taking Dr. Scott Brown so long <laughs> to write this? I, I look, you don't, you don't, you can deny it. That's okay. This is a spiritual, but see. I I thought about that, and I asked myself, is there another book where the scholar has done at least 150 interviews over the course of 10, 12 years, transcribed every one of them, right? read every one of them, tracked down every lead that it, it was in passing that somebody said, oh, by the way, you know, Joe Madison was also... That was from another interview. So the process itself is very important for me as far as going through it. But also, I've also I've, I've had a less than um, public kind of relationship with music making myself. I was in a band uh, as a young person, and I kept playing and writing music. And it's through really a lot of the inspiration from people that I interviewed that I went back to recording and playing again. And so, so much of my work is not just the telling of the story of what people did. It's also analyzing the sound. And I'm able to do things and do interviews with certain people in a way that I wouldn't if I didn't play and record. So even mm -hmm. when I interviewed Sugarfoot, uh, Leroy Sugarfoot Bonner. Yeah, of the Ohio players. Singer, right, right. guitarist mm -hmm. with the Ohio players, right? So poet, he didn't want to be writer. He didn't yeah. want to be bothered with me. He didn't want to uh, be bothered with me. Interesting. However, I um, talked to some older musicians, um, Earl and Sammy Reed, who had the group the Reed Brothers, who were people that he looked up to, and they contacted him, and he agreed reluctantly. I made my way to Trotwood, and he said, "Can I ask you a question?" do you play anything yourself? And I said, oh, as a matter of fact, I do, sir. I play bass guitar. Where's your bass then if you play? Actually, funny you should ask that. I knew I was going to be in Dayton, and I knew maybe I'd get so lucky to get to play with some of my idols. I have my bass guitar with me in the trunk. Go get it. <laughs> Go get the bass guitar. Come on in. All right, plug it in here. So at this point, um, Sugarfoot had gone through a stroke, but he had taught himself how to play piano. And he, he, he learned it so fast. And he said, do you play skin tight? So I went into skin tight. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. And so he listened to me. He said, can you play the bridge? And I played the bridge. And he said, well, you know, you keep practicing, young man. You might be able to make you some money sometime. Now we can do the Yeah. Where do we stand now? With all this, you've revealed and will reveal in your in your lecture. Word up. Where do we stand now? 
with with we the, stand the at, likes yeah, of we the stand yeah. at a place of great opportunity and great uncertainty. The opportunity is that some of the traditional gatekeepers are no yes. longer powerful. So, I mean, you don't have to spend tens and twenty thousand dollars on studio time. You don't have to have a record deal, right? The right creative um, yeah. ingenuity can get your music heard all over the world. You can develop niche markets. So yeah. there's a lot of tremendous possibility here. and It's very exciting. At the same time, it's music now is such a crowded field. So how does one figure out how to stand out? And also the bigger question, how do black folks get a hold of the apparatus, right? Because if we're distributing music because of YouTube or because of Spotify or because of mm-hmm. any of these digital things, is our relationship to them, though, that much different from the days when the distributors gotcha. were record labels? That's All the right. question I want to ask. Okay. Now, let me let me end by this. If uh, Can the public, can my listeners uh, uh, hear your lecture on the 16th? Yes, they can hear my lectures. Uh, and if I might do a shameless plug, you can also hear my music song called Serenity with the former lead singer, uh, featuring the former lead singer, uh, well, not former, currently uh, a lead singer of the group Shy, still lead singer of the group Shy, Garfield Bright, Howard University graduate. Um, we did a song called Serenity, and I have a song uh, also featuring Chris Walker, uh, who sung with Al Jarreau for, for many years, and great, great, great vocalist, and sung with Regina Bell. That song is called You Already Know. Those and, can be found and, on all platforms. Okay. Dr. Scott Brown featuring. And the lecture will be September the lecture, 16th? Yes, the lecture will be held, yes, on uh, September 16th. Is September there a certain... 16th at 5 o'clock, and 5 o'clock. it's on the African American Studies University of Florida website, so uh, perhaps you can share that information uh, with everyone. We'll make sure it gets up on our, our all our social media. It's up there. We'll we'll make sure it gets up there. Okay, um, let's get it all. And, and sure, I, I and I so that lecture it. is going to be held, and it's going to be open to the public. Okay. I encourage everyone to come. I'll talk about the sound, but I also okay. I will talk about the rhythm. But it was R and B, rhythm and business. All right. We will get it up on our social media. It's always an experience, positive experience talking to you. And uh, I, I, I can't wait to hear the lecture. So, Dr. Brown, thank you so much. Uh, and I should point out that it was Dave Canton who said, Joe, you got you to gotta hear this lecture. And I, I told Dr. Canton I'm going to do one, one better. I'm going to get Dr. Scott Brown on. So you, you got to wow. call you got to call him and 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 thank him because he 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 let us uh, he gave, he gave us a heads well a heads up or should I say word up anyhow word <laughs> so, up. <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you man God bless yeah thank you okay God bless well, as well you can listen to yours truly Madison the Black Eagle live every Monday through Friday on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.